Well, welcome to Lakeside this morning. It's not polite to ask people how old they are, so I don't know who the oldest person in the room is, but I do know who the youngest person in the room is, because it's little Jonah Bates, and he's only eight days old, and we'd like to express a congratulations and join in the thankfulness that Hannah and Timothy have in welcoming him, their firstborn son, uh, into the world. So congratulations to you, and we're excited uh, for you as a family. And uh, yeah, we just rejoice with you in that. We have a group of people that help organize whenever, uh, for a variety of reasons, if a family's going through a time of struggle and hospital visits or a new baby is being born, there's a team of people that then make meals for them uh, and drop them off uh, to their house. And if that's something that you would love to do, you love to cook and bake, uh, there's a way that we can get you to do that on behalf of other people when food is sometimes the best expression of love. So if that's something that you would like to do, Beth Morosi and Eva Marks help coordinate that, and they'd gladly add you to that email list when those opportunities come up. Uh, in our handout, there's also a few things that are uh, listed there for you, but some of them are only starting this week. So there's a women's Bible study that Cindy Preston announced last Sunday, but it's starting this Tuesday. And then also a book club on Friday. And if you don't get the detailed version of our announcements of what's upcoming, we send it out via a newsletter every week. And we just need an email address from you. And then we'll make sure you get the detailed announcements that come out to describe the when and the where of how of opportunities to engage. So if you don't get a newsletter from us on a weekly basis, please um, just give us an email address that we can add you to the list. And we would gladly do so. And I'm realizing I came up here without a Bible, and so I'm really glad that this one is sitting right here. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd have to walk down. But I invite you now to take a Bible and to open it to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 4. It's a book in the Old Testament. When I find it, I'll tell you where to find it. Uh, if you're using one of the pew Bibles provided for you, <clears throat> it's on page 694. And we at, here at Lakeside just take the opportunity at the beginning of the year to go back through what is our mission statement to love God, to care for one another, and to communicate his word. And we take that from Jesus himself summarizing <clears throat> when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, all of the law and the prophets could be summarized in those two commandments. So <clears throat> we get that as our mission as a church that we exist to love God, to care for one another, to love one another, and to communicate his word, and that we believe that we should be able to go anywhere in the Bible, and as we're reading it and studying it, it should help us do those two things. And if we're not being drawn in greater love towards God or greater love towards other people, then we're doing something wrong about how we are interpreting the Bible. Now, when we come to the book of Ezekiel, especially in chapter 4, it is, uh, it's a difficult passage, to say the least. And most of the messages in it aren't how to love God and how to love your neighbors yourself. This is a, a judgment passage, but it, it, it follows on what Jesus was teaching. And by the time we're done, hopefully you'll see how. But just sort of a, a graphic warning before we start reading chapter 4. Uh, this is pretty fascinating, almost bizarre. Ezekiel chapter 4, and you, the prophet, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it, set camps also against it and plant battering rams against it all around 
And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days you will lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment, so long as you shall bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you've completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I'll place cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side or to the other till you've completed the days of your siege. And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel and make your bread from them. During the number of days that you lie down on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. And your food that you shall eat shall be by weight. 20 shekels a day from day to day you'll eat it and the water you'll, should, you'll drink by measure the sixth part of a hen from day to day you shall drink. And you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up till now, I've never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. And then he said to me, See, I assign you the cow's dung instead of human dung on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. And that's where we'll stop from now. We'll read other parts of it later. Pretty graphic, right? <laughs> you can see where Ezekiel's like, hey, wait a minute, that's a little bit too far. And then God says, okay, how about this? And you read it and you're like, is that really any better? I don't know if that's any better. That still sounds pretty drastic. And what's going on here is that Ezekiel is being asked to perform publicly, basically street theater. He, he's being asked to dramatize what is happening hundreds of miles away in Jerusalem. So those of you who've been with us, you're familiar that Ezekiel was someone who was taken captive when Babylon came and sieged Jerusalem. And they took with them thousands of people back to Babylon as prisoners of war. And now Ezekiel is one of those prisoners and God is reassigning him. He was trained to be a priest and now he's a prophet and God is saying, this is the first thing that he's being told to prophesy to say this. And it's not a sermon that he's give, it's a series of things he's going to act out as public, visible theater, as a demonstration of what's going on back home. And so the first one, he's making out of bricks the city, and so it's a, it's a toy model, basically, of Jerusalem that then gets crushed. And then the second time, he's asked to lay down on his side, on one side for 390 days, and on his other side for 40 days. And then it says he's going to be bound by cords. So he'll be, his arms will be tied behind his back as he's laying on his side for a period of time. So it, it doesn't take a whole lot. And one of the reasons I'm not wearing a jacket today is so I could demonstrate this for you. So this is literally what Ezekiel is being asked to do. 
for 390 days, people are going to walk past him like this. And it's a visible sign to them to see the punishment that God is bringing on them because of their sin and their rebellion. Now, how does someone have 390 days to do something like that? Well, one, you have a degree that's useless. He was trained to be a priest, and he has zero job prospects. He's unemployed, and there's no future employment coming up for him. So if he has anything, he has time. But he's literally the guy on the ground that if you're in Manhattan and you see someone in the subway who starts trying to get everyone's attention, you're like, kids, kids, come here, come here. Just get away from whatever this person's about to say or do in some dramatic street theater fashion. But that's what he's asked to do for a prolonged period of time in two directions to symbolize the judgment that is coming upon Israel. And he's being asked to do it then. He's saying, well, how are you going to eat and survive for that long? So it kind of describes what he's asked to eat and how minimal it's going to be. And then to show also the offense that sin is to God it said that that food is supposed to be cooked on dung, which is where he then raises his objection because his whole training as a priest was to declare what was clean and unclean, what you're allowed to touch and what you're not allowed to touch, how to keep yourself pure. So everything he did know and everything he was trained to do was trained in a certain way to not defile himself because had he done that, he wouldn't have been able to perform his duties as a priest in the temple. And so God is very much asking him to do something that is not just you and I would just be like, I'm just grossed out. You know, that's no thank you. But something that goes very much against what is otherwise his religious and spiritual convictions as someone who is trained to be a priest. So why? Why is he being asked to do this dramatic thing? Because the great commandments that Jesus taught us in loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and our neighbors, ourself, those great commandments also work in reverse. And we, we have to understand this to make sense of what's going on here in Jerusalem. The great commandments, as Jesus summarized them, also work in reverse. So when they're working positively, when we're overflowing in our love for God with all of our heart and soul and mind, we grow in our capacity to love other people. And we have healthier and stronger relationships. The reverse of that is when we reject God and we reject his will and we live life only for ourselves and only to satisfy our own desires with no greater morality or accountability or authority outside of ourselves, what happens is that we also diminish in our capacity to meaningfully love other people and have healthy relationships. If we neglect God and we run from his will and his ways and his principles, one of the most direct results of that is then a tendency in the human heart in violence towards other people. And that is repeated all throughout Scripture. So that when Adam and Eve in the garden rebel against, rebel against God and they're removed from the garden, the very first story we then hear is the breakdown of that relationship in their love for God leads to a murder in their own family. Where one of their sons who for no reason that we could look at and, and say makes sense, is violent towards his other brother. He wasn't judged in comparison with his brother, so we look at it and we say, why would he do that? I mean, he did something wrong and he got punished for it, but one of the ways he took out that punishment was to take it out on someone else. And then when we get from Genesis 4, where that takes place to Genesis 6 of the time of Noah, 
we see that the entire human race has fallen into this pattern of just all-out violence towards one another. And that's how the commandments work in reverse. So that in the nation of Israel, as they rebelled against God, they weren't just breaking rules of an arbitrary God out there, but they were ignoring the counsel of their loving Heavenly Father. And in doing that, and in living for themselves, they started to allow all kinds of injustices to take place right before their eyes. And they allowed people to be harmed, and they even started to harm their own children. Foreign gods had that as an act of worship, that they'd either harm their own bodies or harm their own children in part of their worship of their deities. That was never permitted among the people of Israel. He said, no, our God is not like that. That's not how he's asking us to worship him. We bring sacrifices, we, we give things to him, but we don't harm our own bodies and we don't harm the bodies of anyone else in the worship of the God who is good and true and beautiful. But as the people of Israel began to neglect that God and ignore his commandments and his ways, it's exactly what they drifted into. And that's the sin that brought judgment upon them as a nation. And so the judgment is God now allowing them to experience the consequences of their rebellion. So when he talks about laying out for 390 days and then for 40 days, the nation had divided. They were one unified nation under David and then Solomon. Then they broke up right after Solomon died. And then sure enough, the house of Israel joined with the Syria and attacked their brothers in warfare at one point in time, in the time of Isaiah. And they went into conflict with one another again, an all-out war with one another. They eventually were destroyed. But then for the people of Judah, who saw what happened in Israel, they also had this living example of the consequences of sin. They could see in technicolor how the commandments work in reverse. And so the people of Judah should have taken from the people of Israel a sign to say, if we don't get serious about this and we don't repent and we don't keep our hearts aligned with the Lord and keep on seeking to love him, we could go the same way they went. And so they even had less of an excuse because they saw this happen to their brothers and sisters in the north, but they didn't listen. And so eventually the siege comes upon the house of Judah from Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And Ezekiel's telling them, this didn't happen because Nebuchadnezzar's more powerful than you. He is. But this is happening because before you ever lost a battle in war, you lost the battle of your own heart and soul. You gave in to the darkness that's inside of you. And now you're starting to experience darkness around you. And he's interpreting for them this experience of exile. That because you haven't been loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and that's led you to tolerate injustice and mistreatment of other people. No one wants to live in Judah anymore. It's not a place where people are saying, please let me go because they know how to take care of people there. They love each other there. No, it's become as brutal and as hostile as any of the other nations, even though they have the law of God among them. And that's how the commandments work in reverse. So Ezekiel is asked to tell the truth even when it hurts. God says to him, you're not going to be a priest. You're going to be a prophet. 
and here's what I'm telling you to prophesy. And this is going to hurt. I mean, try laying on your side like that just for 10 minutes without being sore, let alone for a lengthy period of time. And so here, when we're talking about prophesying, don't think what we almost instantly think is somebody able to predict events way, way, way out in the future. And that's a part of it, but that's not the primary way we should think about it. When we're thinking of the prophets in the Old Testament, it is, these are really dark times. And if they speak the truth, it's going to be really unpopular. And there needs to be someone bold enough to speak the truth when everything seems to be falling apart. To not flee from that moment, to not run and say, I'm, I'm just, I'm out of here. But to be there and to prophesy the truth. To say to them, no, 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 this isn't just Babylon. It isn't that their God's better than our God. It's that we went after their gods instead of continue to stay faithful to our God. That's the problem. And so Ezekiel is trying to help them reinterpret what's happened to them. If their minds are going to go towards we're defeated because our God is defeated, he's saying, no, 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 God's still on his throne. His basic message that we should love him with all our heart, soul, and mind, that we should love our neighbors ourselves, that's still the message, and that still works. But when we neglect that, when we run from that, then we experience the consequences of that falling apart. And here Ezekiel boldly proclaims the truth to the nation who's allowed injustice to become normal among them. And I submit to you that that is still the need for us in our day, is people who can boldly prophesy the truth even when it hurts. To proclaim that God has given us laws and rules. He knows better than we do how we should live them, and we ignore them. We ignore them to our own hurt, to our own peril. Because what he's told us, he's told us for our good. And so we need men and women who are able to stand and proclaim the truth, even when the truth has consequences, even when the truth hurts. I was talking to someone, and I just thought he put it very, very poetically. Because sometimes we think, People just don't believe in God because they, they don't they hear about a God of judgment and a, a God who sets standards and has morals and they just want to cast that off. But more often than not, I believe that most people in their heart of hearts, one of the biggest objections to faith in God is the injustice that is in this world. And so I had someone, a gentleman who was talking about now as an adult having all kinds of control issues in his life and he was recognizing that, that he's just a micromanager and has to control everything. He's a Christian now. But he said, and through the help of a lot of other brothers and sisters along the way, came to a realization where he said, one of the reasons I'm so controlling is because in faith I'm being asked to trust the God who did not protect me when I was a child. And then he unpacked levels of abuse that he experienced as a child. He said that it's the tension that I feel and I want to make things happen and I want to be in control of them because he acknowledged that he has a very difficult time even in his faith and even in what he believes reconciling the injustice that he experienced. And I would say that is true for so many people who struggle to believe in God. What's at the heart of that? It's not disbelief that there is a God 
or disbelief that there is a God who has rules and laws. It is a disbelief that that justice was not acted upon swiftly. That in an experience of vulnerability and need, someone wasn't there who broke in and stopped it. If that is the objection, that's the objection that cries out for justice. Not an objection that cries out and says, oh, you know, all truth is relative and it doesn't really matter what happens and everyone can be free to live life their own way. No, no, no. That is a, that is a deep cry of the human heart that longs for justice. And in other ways, we've been singing that longs for holiness. What is holiness? Holiness is an experience where everything that is right is done and it's done in the right way. And so when we in our minds conceptualize even the holiness of heaven as a place where there's no sin and there's no crying and there's no tears, we only think about that as a place of happiness because it's a place of holiness. If there's no tears there and there's no crying and there's no mourning, that must mean that no one is lying there and no one is cheating there and no one is harming there and no one, no one is misbehaving there. We can't separate those two concepts. And so when God says that he desires for us to live a holy life in accord with his holy standards, he's saying that knowing full well that's actually what you and I long for. That's what we crave. And some of our deepest hurts and our biggest regrets are acts of unholiness that have happened in our own world. So I found this a really, really helpful article to put some of this together. This is our third point. It's called The Wrath the World Needs. Whenever a title is given like that, it makes me wanting to read it. Because <laughs> there's not a lot of people writing anymore about the wrath of God. But Christianity Today awarded a book called The Crucifixion by Fleming Rutledge as the 2017 book of the year. And because they did, then they released this chapter um, as an excerpt in their most recent publication. And Fleming, she writes, When affluent people think of heaven, and she considers herself among them, we tend to think of celestial serenity, natural beauty, and family reunions. Minorities and other disadvantaged groups would be more likely to think of God's promise that there will be ultimate justice. For anyone who has suffered great wrong, it is important to know, as the book of Revelation promises so wondrously, that all wrongs will be righted. To be sure, most people of whatever color or background tend to be intensely interested in justice when it's for themselves. It is the notion of justice for all that is missing for much of our public discourse. People turn out for justice when the issue is something that affects them directly, but it is difficult to generate public enthusiasm to support justice for somebody else or some group other than one's own. Then she goes on to say, there's a theological reason why. Justice for everyone is an alarming thought because it raises the possibility that it might come upon oneself after all. Or as the author of Ephesians put it, by nature, we're all children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So it makes people queasy nowadays to talk about the wrath of God, but there's no turning away from this prominent biblical theme. Oppressed peoples from around the world have been empowered by the scriptural picture of a God who is angered by injustice and unrighteousness. 
If we're resistant to the idea of the wrath of God, we might pause to reflect the next time we're outraged about something, about our property values being threatened, or our children's educational opportunities being limited, or our tax breaks being eliminated. All of us are capable of anger about something. God's anger, however, is pure. It does not have the maintenance of privilege as its object and goes out on behalf of those who have no privileges. The wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up from time to time as though God has temper tantrums. It is a way of describing his absolute enmity against all wrong and his coming to set matters right. And that is the wrath that the world needs. To hear that there is a God who will right all wrongs, who is angered by injustice. Because if you and me can hear a brief story that can get our blood boiling, and how could something happen? How much more? The God who made the world knows how it's designed to work, knows what he's given through his revelation to people to say, Here, here's how to not go there. Here's how to not have those experiences. And then when he sees himself neglected and his word neglected and the commandments work in reverse, but the scripture says throughout, he is a God of justice. And that means he's a God who's angry at injustice. And the theological problem for us is justice for all means, but what about the things we've done too? Because we know we're all guilty of something. And that's the tension of being a human being. We long for justice, but we know we're not perfect. So, so which would we have it? Just excuse injustice? or excuse all of our imperfections. And the scripture says, well, don't do either. Don't do either. In your own life and heart, don't excuse and make light of whatever sins or temptations struggle you. But we know we all have them. Recently, it was, a, a, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago, uh, I've been wanting to get back into playing chess. My dad played chess. I could never beat him, and I can't find a lot of people who play chess. And I was like, you know, I want to pick this up and start playing it. I want to teach it to my boys one day. I don't know a lot of people do it, so I downloaded a, an app on my phone so I could play chess. And it was a Sunday afternoon, and uh, Joshua was taking a nap, Amy was taking a nap, so Levi's playing by himself, and so I pull out my phone to start playing chess. And I'm like halfway through the game, and Levi comes over to me, and he looks at my phone, and he says, it's a good thing mom's not here to see you doing that. <laughs> doing what? what? I'm playing chess. Do you even know what chess is? Just a simple, like, I'm not sure you're really doing something you're supposed to be doing, and it's a good thing. Mom doesn't know about it. I'm glad he knows I'm, I am capable of sin, and that he is too, that we all are. We know that about ourselves, that we're not perfect. And yet we long for justice. We long for righteousness. And so what we need is a God who is holy and in that holiness will not excuse in any way the injustice that this world presents itself, but also in his love for us will have compassion toward us. If you have one of the handouts, I find this quote from C.S. Lewis tremendously helpful. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. 
So one of the ways that summarizes Ezekiel 4 and 5 is even though Ezekiel is proclaiming the judgment of God upon the nation of Israel, that they are about to be destroyed, what Ezekiel is telling them is, you've been destroying yourself for a long time. And God is saying, if you're ignoring me and ignoring me and saying we want our way and we want our way, then I will say to you, you can have your way. But you don't want your way. And so it's not conceptualizing God as having a temper tantrum and now doing something really harsh as much as God who has provided opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent, who says, I'm not going to make you follow me. I'm not going to force you into obedience. And so he allows, at some point, the consequences of sin to have their full effect. C.S. Lewis says, or we can, in a moment of repentance and humility, say, you know what? Everything in my heart is not the way it should be, and I, I shouldn't just want to get all of the satisfaction of my own desires. Maybe I should want what he wants. Maybe I should look up to him and say, your will be done, not my will be done. And to that very same response, God always responds to the broken and contrite heart not looking around the world saying where are all the perfect people and how can I get them and if I get them then maybe I'll be able to do something good in the world no no but where are those who aren't making excuses for their sin who aren't justifying it who are genuinely broken and contrite in their sin but who are saying okay God so help me your will be done in my life because I do believe your holiness is what I need it's what I long for it's what the world needs and God hears that prayer and then in an amazing way if we're open to him, and we don't, we don't excuse our imperfections and we don't excuse injustice, and we become the people who receive God's grace, then when we do things for other people, when we become agents of his in this world to alleviate injustice, we make the most compelling argument for God. When we don't follow him, and we start to allow injustice, we undermine faith in God. And when we do it in his name, then we really undermine him. And that's a black mark on the church in its entire history. If injustice in the world makes it hard for people to believe in God, injustice done in the name of God makes it almost impossible for them to do so. But when we have honesty about our sin, integrity about our shortcomings, and then we begin to work for the justice of other people who are not our own, then someone says, why are you doing that? I don't understand why you even care about that situation. That's not your neighborhood. That's not your problem. That's not your son. That's not your school. That's not... What do you care about alleviating the pain and suffering of other people? We get there only by grace in repentance to come to him and say as you've been gracious in my imperfections and not tolerated in any way the injustices use me now in some way to alleviate the pain and suffering in this world and so that's why we say we exist not only to love God but to care for one another no one will believe we really love God if we're not actively caring for other people and if all we do is care for our own, you don't need Christianity to do that. Every major religion and no religion will teach you that there's a basic decency to caring for your own. 
animal kingdoms care for their own. What truly shows the compelling nature of the gospel is when hearts are changed to care about others that aren't our own. And that when we use the word family, it's a lot larger term than just biology. And when we use the term, we mean it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and true and beautiful. But we know that that means your heart is set against our sin. That you see it for all of its ugliness. That when we've found a way to live with it, it still stinks to you. And that you've sent prophets throughout history to proclaim that message, to awaken us to the seriousness of our sin, to call us to repentance. And we thank you for that. We pray that you would awaken us to not be people that excuse injustice or even our own failures, but that we would be open and broken and contrite before you. So even as we sing this song, we offer it, Father, as a cry of repentance that only you can see in our own hearts and see how you're stirring us. But we do pray that the words that come from our lips and the meditation of our hearts in this would be true. And that you would begin a work of healing and restoration that we need and that our world needs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.